Welcome to the Swansea Cyber Law and Security Podcast. My name is Sara Kohaya and I'm a doctoral research student at the College of Law and Criminology. And I'm Patrick Bishop. I'm a senior lecturer in law also at the College of Law and Criminology in Swansea University. And we'll add a reminder that the views expressed in the show are those of the presenters and do not necessarily represent those of our employers. So welcome to the second episode of the Cyber Law and Security podcast. Today we have a couple of topics to cover. We'll talk a little bit about social media regulation and terrorism, which has been in the news recently. We'll also talk about access to digital evidence from multiple jurisdictions. That's also been in the news. And we'll also talk about the GDPR, or General Data Protection Regulation, which is going to come into effect in less than a year. So that's also been in the news. Okay, so social media regulation and terrorism. Following the recent terrorist attacks in the UK, there have been a number of calls for companies to do more to help law enforcement catch terrorists uh, when they use social media to either communicate when organizing attacks or just for propaganda, radicalization, that sort of thing. So the BBC reported that UK and France were discussing a bilateral agreement to get companies to to basically do more to remove this extremist content or they would face fines. So this is what we have to talk about. And I guess it's worth starting with what it is that terrorists use social media for. And then we can talk about whether we think this is a good idea, finding finding social media companies. Well, I think there's two main uses, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. The first one is, is for the purposes of radicalisation, the dissemination of terrorist propaganda. And of course, given the recent history, we might think of you know ISIS and... Islamic uh, radicalization, but would equally apply to far right narratives, uh, yeah. etc. So there's that, uh, which is a more sort of nebulous concept, uh, and where to draw the line between postings of material which is illegal or not, it might be more difficult. And then there's the, I think, the easier case in terms of whether we need to regulate or not, things like publishing a, a manual on how to build a bomb, targeting lists of vulnerable targets, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's those two, obviously it's probably more complicated than that, but those are the two yeah. main uses to which I think yeah. Uh, yeah. terrorist organisations use the internet and social media uh, in, yeah. in particular. Yeah. yeah, if people want to know more about this, there's a, a really good summary there's a, a literature review that was published by colleagues at Voxpol and this is available from the Voxpol website on terrorists use of the internet and they point towards a number of on on that first use so online radicalization mm-hmm. propaganda they they point towards a number of issues there so um first of all there's some skepticism about self-radicalization on the internet only. So whereas there is a presence in terms of terrorists mm. radicalizing propaganda on the internet, um, 
offline contact is still seen as key. So perhaps there's a mix of initial online self-seeking of content followed by more proactive approaches by terrorist organisations to kind of... So you might not know the answer to this. Yeah. It's just unfair of me to ask it, but well, anyway. Has there ever been a case that you're aware of, or anyone's aware of, of someone who's engaged in a terrorist act, or come close to that, uh, who has been entirely self-radicalised, hasn't had any contact with, off, with the offline world, um, uh, which has contributed to his radicalisation or her radicalisation. Has there been any example of someone who's entirely self-radicalised? Well, I couldn't find any in the literature, and I, th- I guess that's what this literature review kind of points mm. towards. Uh, that's not to say that, you know, it's only the, what's available to the yeah. public that we, we know. And, and the, the online presence does contribute towards building the sense of community, mm. and, and it contributes to that eco-chamber uh, oh, echo chamber. Echo even. chamber, sorry. <laughs> echo chamber, what? Um, echo chamber. So, yeah. But but I, I suppose there, there are, there's a number of issues with regulating this type of content online. And and I've sort of, in my, my mind, I've kind of divided them into tactical issues with regulation. And then there are some issues of principle as well. There are some technical difficulties, and then there are legal challenges. Uh, but I guess before we go there, what what's the legal situation at the moment with regards to social media companies taking down extremist content? Well, there's various controls. There's the, the private law aspects. So when you sign up for a, a Facebook, Twitter account, or a YouTube account, etc then you would agree whether we read them or not and let's face it no one ever reads them but you agree to terms and conditions and if you read them somewhere there there'll be the power to disable your account if you breach the terms of uh, the the publishing guidelines of that website Mm -hmm. and obviously twitter facebook etc would include within that terrorist propaganda etc as breaching the terms so that's a sort of private law thing you agree that the your uh, account can be suspended if you breach the terms you breach the terms and then they're suspended so that's fairly straightforward in terms of the criminal law there is criminal law available mm-hmm. uh, depending on the nature of the post so generally there's uh, what we call section 127 the communications act 2003 which creates a general offense of sending uh, or transmitting a message which is among other things, grossly offensive or of a menacing character. Now, depending on the exact content, yeah. you would think that that would... Many of the propaganda videos, etc., used by terrorist organisations would fall afoul of that requirement. But it's a, what's called a summary-only offence, only six months imprisonment. And, and you know more about this than me, there's also terrorism-related offence under the Terrorism Act, yeah. Um, yeah. which can also be used. And they have a much more stringent sentencing regime. I can't remember. What's the maximum sentence right. for um, some so of the offences? There's a section one, which is encouragement of terrorism acts, and then there's section five, preparation. Um, I haven't actually got it in front of me, though. I believe it's seven years yeah. for encouragement, um, up to seven years. So, yeah, it's a much more serious yeah. uh, offence, obviously. Um, but I guess both of these 
they are criminalizing the individual who posts this content yeah rather than you know criminalizing the actual social media company oh, yeah for, for hosting it in a way but i mean um, one way and we'll, we'll go on to this later no doubt of targeting the social is social media companies is to look at the individual criminality first mm-hmm. and that often acts as a trigger event that and then which requires the social media company well, this is one way of regulating it requiring the social media company to take action yeah so yeah. you've uh hosted to technical term content on your website which is illegal for whatever reason uh, and that acts as a often acts as a trigger mechanism then which requires them to take action in a totally different context in the area of defamation that applies there so mm-hmm. yeah um, if someone if you host a defamatory statement you're protected as long as you do not know about that statement once you yeah. are given knowledge of that statement because someone complains about it yeah then you have to act to remove disable access and if you don't disable access then you can be liable yourself so we don't know what form this proposed regime of finance social media companies will take but that might be one option so the, the initial criminality of an individual might and i stress the word might because we don't know the substance of the uh, of the regime yet might form a trigger mechanism which will then lead to what we might call second reliability on the part of the the social media um, companies that's true i mean at the moment we don't really know the, the news the, the headlines in the bbc was um, uk and france to work together to tackle online extremism and then uh, it goes on to say the uk and france will launch a joint campaign to push internet companies and like facebook and google to do more to remove terrorist material then they go on to say President Macron agreed that, quote, social media companies or internet companies must abide by their social responsibility to step up their efforts to remove harmful content. So step step up efforts to remove the content. So it, we're still talking about removing. Yeah. Um, um, but then it's attaching a legal liability to not removing. So the, the question of whether or not they have to actively search for this content mm. or whether it's, like you say, once they've been notified yeah. that there is illegal content, that they then they have to remove it. And I guess that's the, that's the big question. We don't really know. Yet. I think for many people, me included, a requirement to proactively look for such material, I think, would be going too far and would be too onerous an obligation on these social media um, companies. One of the issues is, 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 at the moment, at least no easy technical fix. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no sort of algorithm that can be designed that will pick out, particularly with video content, which is difficult to automatically search for certain characteristics. Yeah. There's no easy technical fix to the issue, so think it might involve if that was a requirement armies of employees yeah. looking actively looking for this material and of course you can do that in a targeted fashion you can search for certain terms which might reveal twitter accounts or tweets or facebook profiles yeah. with um these sort of sympathies or tendencies but it's still going to be an incredible when you think of this the 
massive volume of material that's out there, I think that would be a step yeah. too far. Yeah. And in fact, Max Hill QC, who is now the government's um, uh, independent, independent reviewer of reviewer terrorism, terrorism legislation, yeah. he commented that actually social media companies are, you know, uh, are being um, proactive about this, yeah. and the, the problem isn't. Uh, the problem is volume, like you yeah. said. So the problem isn't that they don't want to cooperate. The problem is the vol- the sheer volume of, of, of material that they have to look through in order to 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 find yeah. stuff without being. Uh, re- it's one thing removing content that's been flagged. It's another thing, you know, looking through all yeah. of the data that they have to find it. And, and of course, the other problem as well is even if you do that, you suspend an account. Another one pops up. It's a, it's a constant battle. That I think really the social media companies cannot realistically hope to to win. So I I'm rather ambivalent about the need for any sort of regulation anyway. But I think it would be, as I said, a step too far to require them to do that. It would need to be a more reactive thing. Yeah. You've been told by whatever procedure that there's is you know is terrorist propaganda etc. Radicalization material on your site, and you haven't taken action to remove it, and then I think because you'd be given that warning, there's more of a justification then for imposing a fine if the company sits on their hands. But from what I've read, companies don't sit on their hands when they are aware of this material. They do access to, it. as you said, as, as uh, Max Hillcoosey said, it, it's a volume issue, not really yeah. a lack of cooperation issue. Yeah, yeah. Tw- Twitter is reported to have suspended nearly four hundred thousand accounts yeah. in the second half of last year. So that's so, that's, and you know that gives an indication of the volume we're looking at. You have four hundred thousand accounts. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, fr- that's from the New York Law Journal. Um, and so that leads then on to my maybe a broader point is whether regulation is is needed. Mm-hmm. Now that's not to say that I, I have any sympathy for profiles or tweets or Twitter accounts that spread this sort of material, either the, the radicalization stuff, the propaganda or the, uh, the sort of planning and coordination material. I have no sympathy with these people who, who disseminate that material, but do we need regulation? My view is, is if there is cooperation at the moment between the state, whether the UK, France, whoever, and these companies, why would you endanger that hopefully constructive relationship by hanging a the, the stick or threatening them with a stick of, of fines mm-hmm. for doing something which they're already doing and and so that would be my concern that it would be totally counterproductive in that sense yeah i mean from a tactical point of view my i also was thinking about be, perhaps being counterproductive in the sense that if things are taken down too quickly, it then means that law enforcement are not able to perhaps watch that space mm-hmm. and you know perhaps yeah. gather intelligence that yeah. they may have otherwise been able to gather um, if the material is taken down immediately. Mm-hmm. Possibly, I mean, I you know I'm not a tactical expert, but no. I wonder. And then the moving of underground, and this is where perhaps we we disagree here, but if. You know, if all this means is that terrorist organisations will not use open platforms like Twitter or even closed platforms, but that are 
companies like Facebook that do already have these links with governments in many ways, and they move towards smaller platforms that don't have these links, that perhaps are even encrypted end to end. And this is I'm thinking of Telegram specifically, mm. and and there has been a move. You know, it, the, the community that was once on Twitter is thought to now be you know in mm. in platforms like Telegram that are closed and encrypted end to end, and that links in with the the issue of principle. So, if the internet is this ubiquitous thing, then does that mean that the regulation has to be equally as ubiquitous? I can't never say this word <laughs> in order to 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 actually do something. Mm. And what does that mean in terms of freedom of speech and you know? So, yeah. uh, and uh, I mean, I suppose I mean I, I agree with almost everything you've said there. But I suppose one argument or counter argument that would be there's a phrase don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is just because you can't solve all the problems just because you can't come up with a solution which is perfect doesn't mean to say that you can't provide a good solution which might help Um, so you know that's inevitable if you do regulate certain sections of of the internet um, then all, all sections will be regulated, but then if some companies are more vulnerable to that regulation than others, then it, a, it would be a natural tendency for the the material to be moved to other sites. Yeah, yeah. I'm more sanguine about that possibility than you are because I think that if part of the reason for doing this is to stop the wide dissemination of this material by pushing it to darker less accessible corners of the internet uh, then I think that's a gain in itself because you're reducing the volume you're reducing the widespread dissemination yeah, of this material yeah. and in terms of radicalization as well if you go to that much effort to find this material then and this is I, there's no good way of saying this you're probably beyond help in terms of bringing you back mm-hmm. from that you know that radicalization um, uh, process. So, I, I mean, I take your point entirely, but I'm not, in my view anyway, it's not yeah. such a big problem. Yeah. I see all sorts of other reasons not to do this. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, first of all, I'm being cynical, you, but it's an easy target. Facebook, Twitter are an easy target. I mean, I'm no expert by any stretch of the imagination, but the reasons why people become radicalized, the reasons why people commit terrorist acts is unquestionably an incredibly complex thing Mm -hmm. and it cannot be reduced down simply to well they were looking at ISIS propaganda videos on Facebook they've been following extreme right wing people on Twitter etc. I don't think it's anywhere as simple as that undoubtedly that's one possible contributing factor but I suspect that what France and the UK have done planning to do is go after the easy target so it gives them political cover we're doing something about this problem yeah whoever they're doing something which is really going to solve or, or alleviate the problem is 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 very uh, questionable i think yeah you know and it comes down to this issue of correlation versus causation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that is there a correlation 
between the types of people who seek out radical material and those who commit terrorist acts. I think there probably is. If you're inclined towards that sort of viewpoint, if for myriad other reasons you become radicalised and you have with that violent tendencies, then you you might be the sort of person who will seek out this material. So that's the correlation between the yeah. two things. Yeah. I'm not sure it exists, and certainly if one does exist, I don't think it's ever been proven, that there's a causation element there, a causal element, that uh, a person who was hitherto didn't harbour any radical views, didn't have any violent tendencies, by being exposed to this material, is suddenly converted into a terrorist monster. Um, you know, there's no evidence that that yeah. happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, which I think that argument totally undermines the entire argument for regulation in this area, or more regulation. Of course, the again, countering my own position here, you could say, well, better safe than sorry. This yeah. might not be a big yeah. contributing factor, but why yeah. take the risk yeah. if we can do it easily? But I don't think they can do no, it easily. No. That's the point. Yeah, I think that's the point. And it, what, what is this terrorist material out there, right? So... Okay, the the stuff that is perhaps the the, bo- the bomb manuals, you know, that sort of thing, that's perhaps easier to identify. Uh, but then there, there's a lot of other content which is not violent. You know, it is about, it's content that seeks to promote this idea of the caliphate, you know, that projects this uh, idea of the utopia, you know, how great it would be for, you know, uh, how Muslims would be happy in, 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 in this Islamic state. And there is no algorithm that's going to pick that that out that is not going to pick out all other types of content that are not, you know, so so there's a real technical issue here. But more than that, I think, is this this element of of freedom of speech, right, in the sense that if if we put the onus on these companies to, to find material, how are they going to define this kind of material, you know, and are we saying that, okay, it's radical because it's saying that the current global economic system is rotten to the core and and we need to change it. How many other groups and movements and people are on the peripheries and, and not even on the peripheries are actually legally making similar statements about the environmental catastrophe that's around the corner, yeah. saying, you know, perhaps the... The, the, the current arrangement is going to deliver an environmental catastrophe and therefore we need to change it. I mean, are we, do we want to make that illegal? Because it, it's not clear cut, you know. No. You know, just because the, someone is advocating a change, it doesn't mean the content is violent. Therefore, how can an algorithm pick the difference yeah. between these two things? So, so I think it, do, it would have a wider impact than just... Um... So I think that what you're making there is the classic thin end of the wedge <laughs> sort of argument. Um, yeah. Is that Would that be yeah, I guess so. a fair, yeah, fair yeah. summation? I think maybe just to... Unless you have anything to add, conclude on this topic before we, we move on. I think what we've concluded in a roundabout way... <laughs> Is that there's, there's technical issues here which are difficult. I'm not saying that in three, four, five years' time, given the pace of technological change, that these 
technical issues are not insurmountable, but it's certainly at the moment technical issues. There's certainly very obvious issues in relation to freedom of expression and where do you draw the line between yeah. uh, a speech which should be prohibited and expression which isn't, you know, something the philosophers have debated for centuries. There's issues out of whether it'll be effective in terms of a regulatory tool, whether it'll harm the relationship, etc. So I think because of all those problems, you'd have to, on the sort of cost-benefit analysis, have to show that doing this would have a meaningful benefit beyond the current system, Mm -hmm. which is a cooperative one by and large Mm -hmm. uh, between the IT companies, the the social media companies and and the state. So I think you need to think last but the Britain, France and the rest of Western Europe and the world needs to be very careful in, in thinking about these issues before they come to a knee-jerk reaction um, in trying to tackle this problem. It is a problem but I'm not sure the you know the the blunt instrument of fining companies is the way to mm-hmm. uh, is the way to do it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I think we can move on. Okay, so that's the uh, social media. and But obviously, I'm sure when we have firm proposals, if we have firm proposals, then that's something we'll revisit yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, in yeah, future so podcasts. Yeah, hard to analyse something based on headlines. And, yeah, no. although we've tried. <laughs> we have, <laughs> doing our best. Okay, so then we had the um, issue of police access to digital evidence from a different jurisdiction um so this is something that has been on the news because there are two different there have been two different legislative initiatives that have been announced around around this area so first of all the problem is that sharing data across border uh, data that is uh, key to invest criminal investigations prosecutions of cybercrime but not just cybercrime because increasingly the internet is a part of every every mm. everyday life so it's also a part of everyday criminal activity so you know it could be whatever drug trafficking yes yeah, so could think, be anything think of an example it could be a terrorist attack ongoing or the the perpetrator is at large and there's information held on servers outside of that particular country. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, time is of the essence. They want to capture, the state wants to capture that person as quickly as possible. They want to obtain information about that person's circle of uh, friends, uh, yeah, acquaintances and uh, people who have assisted with the crime. And of course, if that's held on another jurisdiction, what we ideally want is a very quick system which will allow that data to be transferred across the borders, um, which will help with a, an investigation uh, that is ongoing. I think that's the, the sort of thing yeah, people yeah. are thinking of that's when it, they yeah. talk about this. Uh, and, and currently, this is governed by the Mutual Assistance Treaties, which set out the process by which this data can then be accessed by police, but they are deemed to be too slow and ineffective. So two legislative initiatives have been announced. First of all, earlier in June, Sky News reported that a new protocol is to be added to the 2001 Council of Europe Convention on Cybercrime, also known as the Budapest Convention, or 
the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime, whatever you want to call it. And the idea is, quote, to help law enforcement secure evidence on servers in foreign, multiple or unknown jurisdictions. And this is the aim. It was agreed by the convention signatories that there would be uh, this new protocol would be drafted and this will be completed by 2019 following and I quite like the fact that I found this information on the convention website 12 meetings at a cost of 194,000 euros <laughs> so not cheap but um, it's coming and then alongside this the European Commission has also proposed new, new legislation to, to address the difficulties of handling digital evidence and they've specifically made three proposals and I am wondering what your thoughts are on this. First of all, uh, idea number one, let's call it, was to allow law enforcement agencies in one member state to ask an IT provider or, or, uh, or an ISP or whatever in another member state to turn over the digital evidence. So this would no longer require the member state law enforcement mm. agencies to be involved in, in this, uh, in facilitating this, this, this access. So law enforcement can directly ask the IT or the ISP company in mm. another member state for, for, for the evidence. The other, uh, so the second proposal would be similar, except that law, law enforcement in one member state would would be able to require the company to mm. hand over the evidence. So instead of it being a request, yeah. it would be a, a, a requirement. And then finally, the, the third proposal is to allow law enforcement direct access to the cloud information when they're unable to determine the location of the servers. So I guess this would be a situation in which um, perhaps law enforcement make an arrest and uh, you know, at the site, they actually, you know, the, the 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 suspect is logged into their account, or yeah. they're logged into some some service that is cloud based, and the and law enforcement can then just you know use the fact that the access yeah. is there to, to to get the the evidence directly, and and this was described by the EU uh, Justice Commissioner Vera Jourova as something that would only be used in, in kind of special emergency circumstances. Mm. Yeah, so what are your thoughts on these three proposals? Uh, well, again, it, it, it comes down to a balance, I guess. Yeah. Um, as we know, privacy isn't an absolute concept. You know, if you look at uh, Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, you know, it refers to the right to privacy. It doesn't actually refers to private life, home and family, etc. But it's basically the privacy um, article. But obviously, it's qualified in that in, for certain justifiable reasons, you can breach that for the prevention of crime, detection of crime, yeah. etc. So I think these proposals essentially come down, and again, we're faced with a problem. We don't know the exact details, the exact thresholds of when these would apply. But essentially, comes down to that balance. You know, are we um, are we allowing law enforcement agencies to do their job effectively, while also providing the the maximum uh, level of privacy? Yeah. Um, and sometimes it might actually be a zero sum game. 
in the sense that you can't have one and the other. You have to decide which is more important. Mm -hmm. I think certainly in the emergency situation, then that might tilt the balance in favour of direct access to the um, the material without any sort of formal procedure to request that or to require that from a service provider in a, another member state and you can just gain access to the material. I don't know and I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist here but I'm sure that goes on anyway. Um, um, I, I'll put this way, I'd be hugely surprised if it didn't, you know, in a post-Snowden world um, and when we've, our eyes have been opened to a large extent about what the capabilities of the security service in all countries yeah. are. I'd be very surprised if that didn't happen, but this gives it a formalised procedure anyway. I think most people would agree that that's probably okay as long as emergency situation uh, yeah. is defined quite tightly. It's what I mean by that yeah. is, you know, so yeah. if you have a very broad interpretation of emergency situation, then that would probably tilt the balance too far away from protection of privacy if anything would count or virtually anything could count as emergency so as long as that was defined tightly and was interpreted strictly I, I personally I'd have no problem with that uh, in terms of the other options again if it's I would go down the voluntary route would be my preference mm-hmm. um, so if you ask an IT provider in another country to turn over digital evidence to some extent that's an undermining the sovereignty of the the member states, so you're sort of uh, bypassing them entirely, yeah, and and just going to the the company, you know, and there's of course there's a sovereignty issue if the company servers are based in that member um, state. They might not; they might be based overseas, which is less of an issue. But of course, that's the logic of the European Union. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I don't want to get into a debate about <laughs> that. That's a whole other um, uh, can of worms. I do not wish to open at this stage. <laughs> So I think as long as it was consensual in that sense, personally, I would have no problem with it. And of course, the argument is always used, and the response to that is often privacy, is, well, if you've got nothing to hide, why do you have a problem with that? That tends to be the sort of the view of the, broadly the right, uh, people on the right, right-wing ideology and those on the left tend to focus more on privacy etc just because I don't have anything to hide it means that this is no business it doesn't mean that this is your business you need to know this I don't want you to have access to this uh, material so again it comes down to that that balance but again it would also depend I think largely on the trigger mechanism so presumably you can't just ask on a whim yeah. For this information to reveal, because you have a, yeah. a you know a vague suspicion that some person X might be involved in criminal activity, uh, I think you would need some sort of test threshold, threshold yeah. test. Yeah. yeah, you know, so if maybe do cause to suspect, which would be a fairly high threshold, yeah. reasonable grounds to suspect that this person is engaged is likely to engage in activity, and of course. As well, I think in a detailed requirement, uh, there should also be some sort of compensation function mm-hmm. for a person who has their privacy breached and then it's discovered that there's no grounds to s- suspect. I 
doubt that would happen. Um, yeah. Just on policy grounds, I mean, you know, if every person who has their if we take it into the offline world, if every person who's suspected of a crime and has their whole home search could then claim compensation, it, yeah. it, it, you know, is a public policy against yeah, yeah. Uh, against that. But I, I think again, it'll depend on the exact detail yeah. and where that threshold is located between privacy and and law enforcement. But at least in principle, I have no fervent objection to it as long as the thresholds are set, I think, at a suitably, uh, a suitably high uh, level. No, I, I would agree. I don't think it's possible to effectively conduct investigations. And it's, it's just going to be more and more so, you know, when, when so much of the trail is electronic. Yeah. Um, and it, it will only, you know, we're only going more that way rather than not so um it definitely you know the 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 cross-jurisdictional investigation problem is a problem which is going to have to be dealt with um and i guess this is this is why this is uh, of course and again in that problem it's again i think this like in the earlier discussion illustrates this constant game of cat and mouse in this area that exists between law enforcement and criminals or potential criminals this is an eu proposed measure uh-huh. that apply to member states. Yeah. yeah so, of course, <laughs> what with the jurisdiction of the borderless nature of the internet, then you, you, you know, you store your information in, in a cloud where the servers are based somewhere unfriendly to Western values, so that any request for help is not, is going to fall on deaf ears, essentially. So, again, there's a problem there, but again, it comes to the, well, just because this won't solve all the problems. Doesn't mean to say we don't do it. You know, you you improve things where you can, mm-hmm. and just because you can't have a perfect solution, doesn't mean to say we shouldn't have a solution which improves matters. But I think you're right. Actually, this is you know more and more these days. Law invest criminal investigation. You know, it's digital evidence uh, uh, is is the key. Yeah. Um, the sovereignty issues, I think, are easy to overstate because there's a lot of, already a lot of cooperation on intelligence sharing, etc. Not only between members of the United uh, members of the EU, but also you know, Britain and America and New Zealand and Australia. Mm-hmm. They have that intelligence sharing agreement, which has been strained recently by the Trump administration, <laughs> uh, revealing things they shouldn't. But again, that's another issue. Um, um, so I think it is important. I think generally. Probably, I would come down depending on the on the the exact measures. Again, I would come down on the ground that the, 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 any damage to privacy concerns or any privacy concerns are probably outweighed by the benefits. But as we said about yeah. the previous discussion, it's all the devils in the detail, and it's all about yeah. the thresholds, the how stringent the requirements yeah. are, yeah. Uh, yeah. etc. Yeah. Of course, because this this is key, isn't it? You can't have if we're going to increase control, then there needs to be uh, an equal and opposite increase in accountability. Yeah. I do feel like sometimes this message gets gets lost, you know, within sort of law enforcement circles. You know, there's, you know, there's a very clear understanding of, of the need for these for these new developments, but this idea that this needs to be Trusting the police is is a requirement for 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 in the social yeah. contract, <laughs> yeah. right? We we need to be able for us to say in the cost benefit analysis. Okay, so I'm I'm 
I'm, I'm happy to compromise that yeah. you know my privacy rights are not absolute. Yeah, happy to give up some privacy in the interest of security, of security. crime prevention, etc. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the social contract. Exactly. So, of so, so of course, for that social contract to, to work, there needs to be uh, an equal element of democratic yeah. scrutiny and, and, and you know openness for. For, for but there is a tension there. It depends when that. It would have to be sort of ex post facto scrutiny. I think in this particular example, yeah. Yeah. because if you have some sort of procedure which has to be followed, yeah, um, then obviously when time is of the essence, that undermines that. Yeah. Um. So it, it might be obviously of a lesser value for those with privacy concerns. But I think it would have to be some after the event yeah, scrutiny see, yeah, rather than yeah. um, although having said that you, you know it, it's been the case for many years that uh, uh, you have on call if you had some sort of judicial involvement etc to check that this whatever threshold is is being crossed before the British police has the French police uh, so you have uh, uh, an IT company based in France for access to the material you know, it's been the case for many years that in all sorts of contexts that that can happen quickly. Mm-hmm. So again, totally off this area, but say, for example, in medical emergency cases. Mm-hmm. So you have someone for on religious grounds who has a child and they're refusing to give consent for that child to have a blood transfusion. There's a high court, I presume, I don't know if this is a technical term, but there's usually a, always a high court judge on call. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the hospital in an emergency can go to the high court judge and apply for a, a court order overriding the lack of consent of, of the parents. Now, you could have a similar system. Hopefully, it wouldn't happen a lot. You know, what I mean by that is we wouldn't have the need for it a lot, but you could have a similar system, so you could still have prior scrutiny mm-hmm. notif- you know, of, the, of whether the test has been passed without yeah. sacrificing speed. Yeah. But you'd have to be careful. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you know, then, you, yeah. yeah. It doesn't become a useless... Uh, There's no point getting this, you know, or the, yeah. uh, the service provider. Yeah, you can have access to this person's computer records, etc. When you get there, there's been such a delay that they've been wiped or encrypted, uh, etc. So I think, mm-hmm. again, there's a tension between scrutiny and accountability and speed. Could I'm just you? glad I am going to decide on these, these issues <laughs> but yeah that's probably something we'll come back to when we see yeah, the I'm sure we will uh, see the scope I'm sure we will and then finally we've got uh, we'll just mention this briefly I guess the, the, so the exciting topic of, the exciting of data topic. protection <laughs> <laughs> so the general data protection regulation is going to come into effect next year I believe it's May May 2018 yeah so May the 25th there we go. <laughs> Less than a year. So um, basically, regulators will have the power to to impose fines on companies that breach the terms of the regulation. And these fines are pretty hefty. So it could be up to 20 million euros. So this is this is a, a, a EU regulation, I forgot to mention. Uh, so 20 million euros or 4% of the global turnover of the company, whichever one is greatest. So yeah, that's pretty hefty. Yeah, so organizations have to uh, adhere to a series of requirements uh, when it comes to securing the data uh, that refers to EU citizens. And that includes 
for example, that all breaches must be reported to regulators within 72 hours of the organisation being made becoming aware of the breach. The regulator also must be informed of, quote, effective, proportionate and dissuasive measures that have been taken or, or proposed by the company to address the breach uh, and, and mitigate its effects. So breaches have to be reported within 72 hours and also the regulator needs to be told what, what the company is going to be doing hmm. about that breach. I think it might be worth saying you know, what we mean by breaches is data breaches. Yeah. So you can think of in fairly recent time the talk talk yeah, exactly. example where yeah. uh, vast quantities of personal data w- was lost. That's right. In addition, if the breach is sufficiently serious, if, it, if it's serious enough, then the customers also so need to be notified that their data um, has been breached. Uh, so one example, we, we heard about those, those data breaches at Yahoo that every now and again it's news again uh, a few years back. But, but the point is that there was a breach, the company was aware of it, and mm. they didn't make the customers, um, uh, they didn't inform the customers mm. that their data had, had been breached. Which is, in many cases, would be the rational thing to do from a business perspective. (laughs) You know, if you're a bank, for example, and there's a data breach, uh, if we take morality out of the issue, your first reaction might be, well, let's try to fix this and don't tell anyone. Because what would be one's first reaction to you in that? Well, I don't trust that bank anymore, and I'm moving my... Um, in my case, overdraft from that <laughs> bank to another bank. Um, so you know, in many ways, that's the natural, almost rational thing to do from a yeah. purely business perspective. And I suppose this part of this new regime is designed to remove that as a rational option. Because if you don't do that, yeah. or if you do do that, if you do sweep this under the carpet, try to cover it up, yeah, and you found out that there's possibly big big fines yeah. coming your way yeah and i guess on the other hand it also is uh, arguably it empowers the consumer in the sense that you know you'll have a right to know yeah and um, that your data has been breached and therefore you can make that decision if you want to leave yeah and go with a different company and um, now i guess just to illustrate how large these fines potentially are. Um, I was at a, a conference in Portsmouth the other day, uh, which is um, uh, organised by the Counter Frauds uh, uh, Centre in, in Portsmouth University, and there was there was somebody there from from a um, well a, an accountancy firm um, uh, called Hay Market. Uh, his name was Richard Kuzniers. And what was his name again? <laughs> Richard Kuzniers. Okay. And basically, he just uh, did this, had a slide which I, I, I really enjoyed. He basically had a look at recent data breaches and how much companies were fined in the UK for those data breaches. And then he sort of calculated what would be the potential fine if we applied this 20 million or 4% of global turnover and the word global here is important because it means that company a multinational company 
if the breach was in the UK, mm. it's not about their turnover in the UK, it's about their global turnover. And of course, as well, it's the word turnover, not profit. Not profit, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So, for example, Talk Talk, we were talking about it, so they were fined £400,000. Under this regulation, they could potentially have been fa- uh, fined up to £73,520,000. It's huge. <laughs> Yeah, and then we've got another example that's slightly different. So Oxfam, uh, a registered charity, they, they were fined uh, £6,000 for, for um, uh, a data breach. And potentially they could have been fined £17,094,300. Uh, I mean, that does really emphasise how much of a leap in... Yeah. in uh, sentencing power the new regulation uh, heralds but i think what we need to be careful with you is these are maximum true and ob- yeah. obviously in any sentencing regime there's aggravating factors there's mitigating factors and you look at each and then you come to a figure uh, and so it's not necessarily the case uh, i think it would be incredibly rare yeah. Um, that the, this 4% figure would be used. But I think the, the idea is, is this is a pretty hefty stick yeah. um, to which to threaten these companies with to get yeah. Their, yeah. their data management, their data security measures uh, in order. So the big problem with this is we're talking about corporate liability. Yeah. And there's an old saying in, in corporate regulation when the corporation sneezes, someone else is catches a cold <laughs> right. so it's all very well finding a company vast quantities of money but of course what happens is then those costs are passed on to other people the stakeholders the customers uh, the employees a vast ranges of uh, stakeholders so that, because undoubtedly the courts all over the world are conscious of that fact um, and you might say well well, that's what the market's for, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, if the price of my use it talk talk subscription has gone up because they've been fined a huge amount, uh, then I go to a, another company, and of course that's that's fine if you have a open competitive market. But not every company operates in an open and competitive mm-hmm. uh, market. So the, I think that there's that issue there, and for that reason. Regulators, uh, courts, etc., would always be conscious of that when finding an organisation. Yeah, you know, especially someone like Oxfam. Yeah, uh, which you know, not justifying lax data protection procedures there at all, but you know, they have a a, a valuable function to to perform. So, I think what this is is this is sort of you know a threat. Yeah. Um. You know, and again, there's a often phrase that you, uh, the bigger the stick, yeah. the more softly you can talk. Yeah. Um, to get your message across. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And so when it comes to a more cooperative relationship with um, data processors, which includes virtually any organisation yeah. in, in, the, in university <laughs> the university, any company, that, yeah. anything. And when it comes to a cooperative approach in terms of how can we facilitate greater data protection, etc., you know, it might be easier to have that facilitative approach when you've always got in the background that threat of, of 
very punitive fines that, that, that may be imposed. Yeah, yeah. Just to introduce a little bit of regulatory <laughs> theory there. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, you know, companies have about, well, less than a year to, to get ready for this, but basically they, they need to find out where their personal identifiable information, which is a term used in the regulation, is, and make sure they have the mechanisms in place then to, to know how and when uh, this is breached and then what, what they will do if it is. Um, it's not. It's it's important to note. This is you know. It can't just be an IT issue. It's mm. it's a whole organisation issue. You know, HR, whatever other departments yeah. need to be involved in this, identifying where this data is, and you know how how you know who's accessed it. Basically, and on the plus side, I think it, it's it's probably already happening, but it's pretty lucrative training opportunities here for uh, <laughs> any company who wants Indeed to provide is. such uh, you know, data protection, audits, training, etc. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so. <laughs> uh, who says regulation, you know, is, uh, is, is bad for business, hey? <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, this is it for this, for this month. Um, do you have any, got just a couple of free advertising slots and then we'll we'll go so if, if you've made it this far in the podcast well done and <laughs> <laughs> here's the free advertising so what, what have we got coming up do you want to yeah i think the main yeah. thing is which ties in very nicely to a lot of what we've been discussing today is swans university uh, as uh, next week and sarah will remind me of the date at some point the exact dates. 26th and 27th, I'm going to hazard. Oh. No, 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 27th and 28th. 27th, 28th of June, we have the Terrorism and Social Media Conference in Swansea in the the almost brand new Bay Campus. That's right. Um, and it's bringing together uh, lots and lots of different academics from all sorts of disciplines, law, policy, politics, psychology, uh, um, uh, technical people in computer science, etc., looking at this issue of how terrorists use social media, uh, etc. So you can still, it's late in the day, but you can still book a last-minute place uh, if you want to attend that. Um, If you look out on Twitter as well for the hashtag TASM, Terrorism and Social Media, um, there'll be a lot of live tweeting so you can keep abreast of, of things there. And one of the good features about this is some of the keynote speakers that the conference has attracted. Yeah, yeah, so, very impressive. So we, we have, uh, I'll just mention four, there's lots, but I'll just mention four. So no disrespect to anyone that I'm not <laughs> mentioning. So you have Sir John Scarlett, or those of you uh, will know, was the former head of the um, Secret Intelligence Service, to give it its official title, to give it its tabloid title, MI6 the Foreign Intelligence um, Service. We also have uh, a professor who's a, a professor here at Swansea, but has held academic posts all over the world in very illustrious universities, called Professor Philip Bobbitt, who's had consultancy and advisory roles for many um, uh, US administrations. So he's uh, going to give a keynote address. We also have the Facebook policy manager in Europe, 
Dr. Erin Marie Saltman, who's going to give a keynote address. And then yeah. finally, second mention of the podcast, Max Hill QC, right. who's the government's independent reviewer of terrorism uh, legislation. I'm sure they're going to, all going to make interesting, noteworthy um, points. So if you can't make, as I said, look for the hashtag TASM, terrorism and social media, and you'll be able to follow what's going on uh, there. Brilliant. And if you do make it and... You- you you happen to be I, I believe Patrick here is chairing one of the panels so you know if you listen to this podcast um, make sure you go and say hello to him afterwards He's... I'm not holding my breath but uh, <laughs> you'll never know brilliant um, great I, I've got two quick shout outs so the cyber network conference is also happening at Swansea in September and we have our second call for papers out this is a PhD led conference so it's organized by phd students and you know hoping to bring other phd students again multidisciplinary we have a digital health theme we have a a digital democracy theme we're looking at privacy and security that's another theme and we also uh, have a theme about digital contracting so business contracts on the internet etc so um yeah you can still submit an abstract if you want to come along and if you do and it gets accepted, you can come for free. So that's a good one. And finally, my last shout out is to another podcast, which I actually mentioned last time, uh, which is kind of a little bit of an inspiration for me, actually, in the podcasting uh, realm. If you're a more technical oriented person and you want to listen to a cybersecurity podcast, which is about the technical side of it, the Defensive Security Podcast with Jerry Bell and Mr. Andrew Kellett. It's a very good one and it's available on iTunes and all of the other podcast search engines, as is this podcast now, which I'm quite excited about. You can now find it on iTunes. So that's great. Cool. Well, uh, thanks very much for listening and see you next time. Bye. Welcome to this one. <laughs> I thought it was my turn the way you paused. Hang on. Like the polar bear that goes into a pub. He says, uh, can I have a pint of lager? And the bloke says, buy the big pole. <laughs> Are you blocking the mic? Uh, I might be. <laughs>